Welcome to A Voice from the Hills. I'm James Warner, co-founder of Silicon Hills Wealth Management here in Austin, Texas. And our special guest on today's podcast is one of our own, Dean Rogers. Dean is a chartered financial analyst and serves as portfolio manager and associate advisor here at Silicon Hills Wealth. We're going to have Dean to talk about all manners of the markets, equities, fixed income, alternatives, etc. But we're specifically going to refer to a piece that he just penned entitled Ballad of Bulls and Bears. He's got some interesting stuff in there, including a, a story on the origin of the term bull and bear that I found uh, pretty interesting. I didn't know before uh, we decided to do the pod. So I do hope you'll uh, enjoy it. And so let's talk markets with Dean Rogers. James Warner is the founding partner of Silicon Hills Wealth Management and the host of A Voice from the Hills podcast. All opinions expressed by James, his co-host, and his guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Silicon Hills Wealth Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Good morning, Dean, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Man, I really loved your recent piece, uh, Ballad of Bulls and Bears. It was uh, really cool. We're going to link it to the uh, the show notes of the podcast so that everybody can read it who wants to. But it's really, really interesting work. I appreciate that. And and I want to start off with a true confession here. I've been doing this for about 30 years, and I didn't really know the origin of the term bull and bear. Uh, so let's start with that. I think that was a that was a fun way to start the piece. Yeah, you know, I really didn't know that either. And the the hardest part, at least for me, whenever I'm writing something is the introduction, right? You have this shell of what you want to write about, but how do you kick it off in a, in a captivating format? And so I was, as I was doing my research, you know, I wanted to, and I know we'll get into this, this concept of mean reversion. And, uh, you know, there's this constant arm wrestling match, it seems like between the bulls and the bears in the market. And so I was just curious where the origin was and come to find out, you know, our, our, our West coast ancestors, uh, whenever they were, uh, you know, beginning to populate the coast of California, uh, grizzly bears were, uh, uh, quite the nuisance. In fact, they were, uh, you know, they posed a lot of harm to both crops and to um, livestock and to, and to the settlers themselves. And so as a means of controlling their population, they would uh, capture them and they would put them into these gladiatorial cage matches with bulls. And they would actually tie up the bear uh, or uh, so, so that, that they were at a disadvantage against the bull. But even though they were chained up, um, the, the, the bull uh, still ultimately ended up uh, falling to the bear oftentimes. And so I thought it was interesting that despite the disadvantages, uh, the bear still seemed to have the upper hand. Uh, yeah, so they, they set up the game, not wanting to lose the bull. So they tie the bear to the pole. Yeah. And yeah. The expectation, like many investors expect a bull market, you know, for the entirety, or they hope for a bull market for the entirety of their investment, uh, life. But even though that bear is chained to the pole, it can uh, it can still be dangerous. So I, I thought that was really uh, really a cool way to start the piece. Yeah, yeah, and I think it, it's cool too the, the the metaphorical implications of how the, the the bear you know will tend to swipe down with a claw and the bull will tend to to jab upwards with its horns uh, is metaphorical to an uptrend and a downtrend in a market. You know what we now refer to as bull and bear markets. So I thought it was interesting that um, you know oftentimes as investors. 
I, I feel like, you know, we, we often experience bull markets or we think we're in one. I think it's the data point is the average bull market lasts seven times longer than the average bear market. So it's, it's easy for us to think that, oh, well, maybe this time is different and there's no way that a, a bear market could come around, but they do tend to pack a punch, even if they do seem to be at a relative disadvantage at the time. Yeah, short, but very painful. Yeah, uh, you, exactly. And you quoted, uh, you quoted the late John Bogle in your piece. He, he famously had one ironclad rule for markets. Why don't yeah. you talk us through what that rule is and how might that rule give investors some comfort coming off a difficult year? Yeah, I mean, so John C. Bogle, he was the founder of Vanguard. He um, suggested that, you know, mean reversion is the ironclad of financial markets. And the concept of mean reversion is that even though, you know, markets, the stock market, for example, is an upward trending asset over time. So you can expect that line, you know, to, to continue to move higher and higher, you know, over the course of several decades. But there will often be periods and, and oftentimes it's due to just behavioral implications where we as humans have heard like tendencies where, you know, people will pile onto something and, and things will become overvalued or then there, there might be uh, overwhelming fear in the market and things begin to sell off and multiples compress too much to the downside. And so there's, there's this constant, like I said, arm wrestling match between trying to strive for what that fair value is. And that is ultimately what creates economic cycles and volatility in the market. Yeah, and I think when we talk about reversion to the mean, there's there's one thing that's a little hard for the average investor to grasp. It's that when we're coming off a particularly difficult period, it can actually increase the expected returns in the future. And so at that point, when we have our lowest level of confidence, uh, the future might actually be the brightest. And and conversely, after we're through that end of the long bull market, uh, and I think we saw that probably in, uh, you know, leading up to the latest correction that, you know, some of the numbers were expecting, you know, lower expected returns long term. So, uh, you know, if you can get through the pain, I think that's the the reversion to the mean can be, uh, you know, it can be a, a, a nice thing to look forward to, <laughs> uh, depending on what part of the cycle we're in. Yeah. And I think that's the interesting thing, especially about behavioral finance is this concept of, you know, not that you should always be a contrarian investor, but having some level of contrarian awareness is, I think, important because whenever you are in a situation like we were at the start of last year where uh, interest rates were near zero, uh, equity markets were trading near all-time high multiples, that tees up a relatively low expected return environment. And then we began to see that unfold with the S&P 500 dropping about 20% over the subsequent 12 months. Now, as we kick off 2023, the reality is, you know, the market has rebounded pretty handsomely so far this year, but we're still 10, 15% off of our all-time highs. And regardless of where the market goes from here, you know, even if there is some continued volatility, the fact that we're not trading at an all-time high allows for more of a spread for investors to capture if they were to theoretically put money in the market today. And so, I mean, I think it's the whole mantra of Warren Buffett. You know, you you, you want to not only buy good companies, but valuations do matter because that will lend itself to more multiple expansion over time. And, and as we talk specifically about equities in uh, in your article, you talk about uh... – you talk about the equity valuation compression, which is you know kind of easy to get our, our our arms around. But you also refer to something else as being alive and well, and that's the value spread. Yep. So what is it, and how, in your opinion, should that value spread impact how we invest our equity allocations going forward? 
Sure. Yeah. So the value spread. So there's a lot of ways to bifurcate the investable equity universe. You have small companies and large companies. You've got U.S. companies, international companies, and you have growthier or more expensive companies from a valuation perspective. And you have companies that are better value. Think of them as being on discount relative to to most other peer companies in its universe. Now, Interestingly enough, a lot of growth companies, an easy example of a growth company is going to be uh, your mega cap tech companies. So your Googles, your Amazons, your Apples, your Metas of the world, they are generating a lot of cash flow and they are generating a lot of revenue. Don't get me wrong, but the price that investors are willing to pay for $1 of that revenue or $1 of that earnings is significantly higher than what someone might be willing to pay for $1 of earnings off of uh, Exxon because there's so much future implied growth, largely due to innovation. But there's there's a maturity curve over time. I mean, Apple, for example, is beginning to transition from less of a growthier type of company into more of a value-based kind of solid, consistent financial type of company. And so in saying that, the way that we like to look at our equity universe is we say, you know, for starters, let's just try to, to, to bucketize companies that are trading at good valuations and relatively high valuations. And that spread between those growthier, more expensive companies and those more value-oriented companies is what we call the value spread. And typically, there's a chart that I include in the piece that is essentially a regression model that will show that whenever you begin to see that spread between growth and value get really high, meaning that, you know, growth companies get really expensive relative to their value counterparts, it almost always precedes uh, a period of sustained equity volatility. And that's where you begin to see that multiple compression because folks have been so willing to pay for that future growth, but then something like interest rates uh, will really begin to, to impact those valuations quickly, as we saw last year. And I think the chart you're referring to is the one from uh, AQR Capital Management that uh, basically quantified that historical value spread. And so I guess what I'm hearing you say, Dean, is that the value spread tells us something about the market as a whole, historically speaking, at least. Does it tell us something about the implied future performance of these value companies compared to growth companies uh, when we do exit an equity downtrend? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there are certainly, I mean, and I'll be the first to say, you see a company like Amazon, I use Amazon every week, it seems like, and you see it trading 40, 50% off its all-time highs. It's hard for, for me to not say, wow, that seems like such a great discount. I would love to buy some Amazon right now. But whenever you go and you look at the data, and you don't just look at one specific company, you look at these broad baskets of similar securities, you can begin to see, and I think I include a line in the piece, that if there is a bubble, it certainly has not popped yet because we are still punching above that 90th percentile in terms of that that historical spread between those growthier companies and those value-based companies. And so I think that in terms of future expected returns, every day that the market is down, your future expected return is going to increase regardless of what asset you're, you're investing into. But I do believe that Given what the Federal Reserve is doing and what we're just seeing with the broad economy, I do think that there's still continued opportunity within some of those more uh, profit-oriented, value-oriented companies because multiples still have not compressed nearly as much as they would have in, in, in a historical market downturn. 
Yeah, and I think for the average investor, when growth is in favor, it's easier for them to identify the specific companies that might take advantage of that trend. Sure. Uh, and when the concept of value is in favor, it's it's a little bit harder. Uh, yeah. What do those companies look like and how and where do uh, investors find them? Because like you said, we could find Amazon on our doorstep almost every other day. Uh, but some of these companies that are in the value sector are, you know, look good quantitatively, but they're not household names. They're not, they're not things that just flow off the tip of your tongue. They're not products that we use every day necessarily. So where do you find them and how do you find them? Yeah. I mean, you, you, you bring up a great point and you know, I, it, it's really a broader point about investor psychology because you know, the S&P 500, for example, is a market capitalization weighted index. So the, the better a company is doing, think Tesla, for example, or Amazon, it's going to become a larger constituent of that index. And so oftentimes the growth of your companies, the more expensive companies that have ran really hot for several years are those that are top of mind for everybody. Amazon, Netflix, Google, they're, they're, they're top of mind because they've gotten so much notoriety in the market. Conversely, those that are on the value side of the spectrum tend to be a little bit more overlooked, but not always. So one of the, the managers that we use, um, Alpha Architect, uh, the, the, the value screen that they run often picks up oil and gas companies. Why is that the case? Because they have a lot of assets on their book, uh, I, I should say tangible assets relative to intangible assets. They, they have very, very healthy free cash flow and they trade at relatively decent multiples and, and, and carry a really healthy dividend. So, I mean, that just naturally will lend itself to passing one of those more value oriented screens. But, you know, Meta, for example, or formerly Facebook, uh, actually was picked up by that screen after it sold off 75% last year because it was trading at a really good valuation. And also had uh, pretty healthy free cash flow, especially for its industry. So, you know, it, it depends and it really does depend on those valuations. But, you know, oil and gas is a really good example. Utilities are a really good example. The, the, the less the, you know, I like to call them the less shiny objects in the room, but those that are still staples in our everyday lives. We still need gas for our cars. We're still going to go buy rice and beans from the store, right? But they're just not gaining as much, like I said, notoriety as uh, something like Amazon because we see those those vans on the road every day. Sure. Let, let's switch markets for a minute and let's go from stocks to bonds. Mm -hmm. And obviously 2022 was a, was a tough year for the segment, or really the, the toughest year, I guess, on record. Yeah, uh, but you gave fixed income an interesting title in your piece. You titled it the Comeback Kid. Yep. So let's touch a little bit on maybe the factors that made 2022 so challenging, but more so, let's talk through the rationale for a bond comeback in 2023 and beyond. Sure. Well, the the and one of the reasons why I introduced it early in the piece is a big part of it is mean reversion, right? I mean, is is there there's a natural ebb and flow to the asset class that clearly demonstrated itself over the last 12 to 18 months. But if you rewind the clock back to call it this time last year, interest rates, the the, the, the Fed funds target rate was sitting at 0%, 0 to 25 basis points. And understanding that, you know, equity valuations were trading their all-time highs. There was a lot of fiscal stimulus in the system. Money was easy inflation was really beginning to mount that not just the federal reserve but central banks around the world realized that they needed to begin to curb some of that demand and try to 
to, to regain control of inflation while they still could. And the best mechanism in the Fed's toolkit to do that is by raising interest rates. And so we as a firm, like I said, rewind the clock back you know, 12 months or so, realized that it would probably be wise for us to go ahead and take some profits on fixed income and rely on some other risk managing vehicles for the portfolio. But, you know, what made last year so tough is that the Fed embarked on um, a series of rate hikes over the last 12 months that has essentially brought that benchmark rate from 0% up to almost 5%. And that began just in March of last year. So, I mean, it seems like forever because there's been such an influx of, of news headlines regarding the Fed, but it's really been less than 12 months where we've seen such a parabolic shift higher in interest rates. And as interest rates rise, the value of existing fixed income will actually decrease because, for example, let's say that uh, you own a, a bond that is yielding a fixed interest rate of 2%. But I can now go buy a bond that is yielding 3 or 4%. Well, why on earth would I want to buy your bond that's yielding 2%? I'm going to need a discount in order for me to want to take that off your hands. And so those, those investors that were holding bonds that call it were issued in 2020 or 2021 looked a lot less attractive going into 2022 as rates began to rise. And that resulted in, as you mentioned, the worst year in recorded history for fixed income to the extent that long maturity uh, treasury bonds actually dropped more than the NASDAQ and in the year down about 33%, which is crazy because fixed income and equity, as most folks know, are meant to serve as kind of a ballast to one another. They're a yin and yang to portfolio construction. But uh, you saw a lot of that value eroded as you began to see interest rates rise. Now, uh, with interest rates, you know, being much higher and, and the, the outlook for Fed uh, rate hikes beginning to, I would say, plateau, we believe that not only is there a, a pretty good opportunity for some total return because we think that yields are going to come back in at some point, um, but you can also clip a 4 or 5% yield on a T-bill that's less than a, a year in maturity, which is a really, really solid, not just uh, – portfolio risk managing tool, but also a great inflation hedge because it's 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 one of the best sources of guaranteed yield that you can get right now in the market. And that was not the case 12 months ago. Yeah. And I can't, I think that kind of leads us into another portion of the piece where uh, you highlight the yield curve. And mm -hmm. I think you talked about, I think you did a great job of just describing the, the journey for the, the fed funds rate. Um, and how that's impacted the price of the average bond and, you know, why you'd have to discount your current bonds in comparison to newly issued bonds at higher rates. But let's talk about what that means from where we are in the yield curve today in terms of what's my expected yield on a very short maturity instrument like a T-bill What's my expected yield on a longer term instrument like a, a 10 to 30 year bond? And how does that compare if I'm looking at a if I'm looking at a 30 year bond that was trading a year ago, or let's let's do the 10 year, that's that's easier. If if I'm looking at a 10 year treasury bond that was trading uh, prior to those first interest rate increases. What price would I be looking at if we looked at that like a stock? Because you know, mm -hmm. we, it's easy to tell when a stock goes down in value, you know, thirty or forty percent, because we see those cross the ticker every day. If yeah. I own a ten-year Treasury bond, I, I really don't see that happening in the same manner. But 
where am I sitting today in that yield curve? And what does that yield curve tell us about what we can do for our short-term needs as cash, cash reserve management and for our longer-term needs when we're trying to generate more income and trying to build a diversified portfolio using uh, fixed income and bonds? Sure. Yeah. So right now it, it is really interesting because we have an inverted yield curve and, and typically, and I mean, it's, it's, it's relatively intuitive, um, you know, where you, you typically want to see uh, an upward sloping yield curve because you would, you would think rationally that I want to earn more money if I'm going to lend you funds for 30 years versus one year. Right. Anything can happen in 30 years. And as as the lender, you're taking on a lot more risk in terms of just the, the, the maturity of that loan. However, whenever we get into these periods of call it market distortion, um, you, you will often see inverted yield curves, particularly leading up to recessionary environments. Not to say that it's going to happen, but an inverted yield curve, meaning where your, short, your shorter term interest rates are much higher than your longer term rates, is one of the most telltale signs of a recession. I believe actually a, an inverted yield curve has precipitated a, um, a recession, uh, I think almost every instance that we've had a recession since 1960, which is interesting. Um, so we'll see if this time is different. But regardless, right now you can earn about 3.5% on a 10-year treasury bond, which is which is not too bad. And it's fluctuating daily. Those rates have come up, I, I believe, a little bit since I wrote the piece about a week ago. Uh, but on the, uh, on the I, I was looking at it this morning, a nine-month treasury bill is, is yielding 5%. So you can just lock up your money in a government-backed instrument for nine months and earn 5% yield to maturity, or you can buy a bond for 10 years and you can take on a lot more repricing risk and only earn 3.5%. So right now, from a portfolio construction perspective, it, 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 it to me, would behoove investors not to at least you know, take a portion of their portfolio and take advantage of some of those shorter-term rates because the shorter maturity those bonds are, the more insulated you're going to be from things like interest rate moves and, and just general market volatility. So it's a really good way to actually lock in what truly is kind of a high risk-free rate. Now, as you go to the longer end of the curve, I do believe that you know there will be a resumption of an upward sloping yield curve at some point. And that means that uh, short-term interest rates are likely going to fall relative to longer-term interest rates, or longer-term interest rates are going to rise more so relative to short-term rates. In either event, for our clients, I think it makes a lot of sense to be sitting on the shorter end of that yield curve because even if the long end of the curve doesn't move at all, if you're sitting on the short end of the curve and those rates are going to come down, not only have you locked in a higher yield, but you're going to get better pricing as those interest rates on that portion of the yield curve fall. Ultimately, over time, I think as you begin to see a resumption of that upward sloping yield curve, it will then be more attractive to buy some of those longer dated bonds because at that point, then you will be receiving a higher yield and, and perhaps get some of that total return component as well if you begin to see rates stabilize relative to where they are now. Yeah, and we don't think about the capital appreciation potential of a nine-month bond very often, right? Uh, no. We think of the security of being able to get my principal back and that stated rate of return as long as I'm able to as long as I'm able to meet the liquidity requirement and hold it for the period of time I need to hold it for. But in your case, I mean if we did have a drastic move down in that shorter end of the curve, we would actually that would actually provide more liquidity to some of these 
shorter term T-bills and possibly give investors the ability to cash out early at a premium. Yep. Uh, it's unlikely, but it could uh, it could happen. And so I guess the worst case scenario for somebody in that regard is that, you know, that doesn't really transpire. You see the short end of the curve continuing to go up. And for whatever reason, they have to uh, they have to access that cash before the maturity date, right? They have to they have to break their con- their end of the contract, right? When you're when you're getting into these T bills, you're you're basically making a contract with the instrument, saying, "I plan on holding you for X number of days, and yep. in return for that, I'm going to get uh, a pretty exact return." Um, and so, I think for for people who are carrying a lot of extra cash on the sidelines and looking to manage their cash. This is an opportunity that we really haven't seen uh, in some time uh, to really be able to really be able to go out there with your cash reserves and make a meaningful difference in your underlying, uh, you know, rates of return over time. So I think that's a real helpful message to give people because I just don't think the, the shorter end of the fixed income curve is, is very sexy. It's not talked about very often, sure, um, but it does. There are a lot of clients and a lot of people listening to this that probably have cash reserves that let's be honest, after a very difficult year are probably a little bit higher than they normally would be anyway. Yeah. And so it's, you know, it's helpful to, uh, Helpful to understand that. So walk us through the three, six, nine month curve as it stands now. And of course, we understand the uh, the prices change. But what do, what do the economics look like as you take those three months of additional risk uh, for the cash reserve people out there? Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's really quite interesting. So the, the, on the a three-month maturity note, you're earning probably about 4.75%. And then actually the six-month and the nine-month um, are both yielding right at about 5%. And then it drops off pretty sharply. And so once again, I mean, you're, you're looking at a really good opportunity to, to, to ladder some of those instruments. I know one thing that we've been doing a lot for our clients is, you know, uh, XYZ individual will come in and they'll say, Hey, I want to put some money into the market, but I'm nervous. You know, I lost money last year. I don't like what I'm seeing on the news. And we say, that makes sense. What you could do is let's go ahead and take those dollars that you want to invest into the market, but let's do it over the course of a year and let's buy you a three month, a six month, a nine month and a 12 month treasury bill, get you an effective yield of about 4.8% call it. And then as those mature, that can be money that we layer into the market and we kind of take our own emotion out of it. You know, I think that's one of the most difficult times or one of the most difficult aspects of times like this is that it's really hard to keep your emotion out of a volatile market. And I think these tools, not just in terms of yield are a great instrument, but I also think they're a great instrument in terms of coming up with a plan and sticking to it and extracting some of that emotion that we might otherwise have and putting our money to work in the market. Yeah. And we talk about dollar cost averaging usually in the terminology of limiting our exposure to the equity markets over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is, I think, extremely helpful for people who've had a, a large liquidity event. Maybe they sold a, a piece of real estate or a business or what have you, or maybe they got you know, you know some kind of windfall through inheritance or whatever. And now they're feeling this burden of, wow, I've got this, you know, very large amount of money. I know I need to invest it for the long term, 
but it feels really reckless to just throw it all into any one strategy over time. So what you're saying is the, the T bill rates being what they are in the three and six and nine months create kind of an ability to make a meaningful return and almost structure you into uh, that idea of dollar cost averaging over time and let you educate yourself and let you get comfortable with the risk and the volatility that your eventual portfolio is probably going to have without seeing those, without seeing that risk and volatility from day one. And when you're working with clients who've put in a strategy like this, how do you get them to see the two parts of their portfolio differently? How do you prepare them for the future equity volatility, good, bad, and indifferent and educate them on the other side of the portfolio that's really protecting and earning a meaningful return while you're entering that ultimate investment strategy? Sure. I mean, I think one one gimmick that we like to use is kind of a Dave Ramsey approach where you open up a separate account, you know, a separate envelope, if you will, and you put that $100,000 or whatever into that separate account. And then what we'll do is we'll go in, you know, every month or every quarter, whatever that timeline is that we agree on, and we'll liquidate a portion of those treasury bonds or they'll mature. And then we'll transfer that money separately over into the account with your your, your core portfolio. And that allows for kind of a, a mental accounting mechanism where you can see the money move from call it the, the savings account into the market account. And I mean, I think that's one way that we were able to present it and also uh, facilitate some of that cash management, because really what we're talking about is cash management. I know there's one client that we have that was wanting to, to build a, a home about call it 18 months or so ago, and they just didn't think the market was right. But they also didn't want to lose the purchasing power on the money that they had saved. So we opened up an account for them so that they could continue to, to protect the power of that money that they had spent so long saving and, and, and then, but still have liquidity there when they decide that it's the right time to purchase a home. So it's a great way to protect your purchasing power and force discipline and also insulate the portfolio from risk. So, so needless to say, the the environment that we've uh, been forced to embark on over the last year has, I, I think if I'm just summarizing your article from an equity and fixed income standpoint, is the opportunities that existed in the equity market are still there, but they might not be in the same place. Yeah. Might need to look in a different location for those opportunities. And fixed income is really a different world than it was a year ago and anybody who hasn't followed it or paid attention and is a meaningful participant in that market uh, really needs to uh, spend some time on it and see where the world is today versus where it was a year ago. Is that fair statement? Yeah. Yeah. And I think one anecdote I would add is yeah, I, I heard this in college and it really changed the way that I view markets is that most assets are created equal on a risk adjusted basis. And so really what we're trying to do is maximize, call it the price per square foot, the bang for buck you can get for each unit of return for each unit of risk that you're taking on. And right now, you know, we believe that, you know, we don't have an ability to time or predict markets, but we do believe that trying to focus on the, the, those more profitable value oriented companies and isolating your fixed income exposure on that shorter end of the yield curve is a great way to maximize that bang for buck that you're getting for the risk that you're ultimately taking on in your portfolio. 
And let's go one more uh, one more level into your piece. So as we kind of exit that traditional uh, stock and bond look at the markets, uh, you brought up another uh, topic. I think you labeled it the bellwether. Uh, and of course, we're talk about we're talking about risk managing alternatives when we uh, when we enter that section. That'd be an interesting section for people to read if they're uh, looking through the article and maybe don't want to go through the whole thing, but want to go to a section where it's talking about something that's probably foreign to a lot of uh, a lot of individual investors. So let's talk about risk managing alternatives. What are they? Why were they important in 2022? And is their inclusion in a portfolio? Was it was it really based on a short term necessity because of rate hikes? Or do these risk managing alternatives have a place, have a long term place in people's portfolios? Yeah, well, I think a, a great place to start is to demystify the word alternatives, because I think that the term alternatives definitely have a stigma to them. And it's because it's such a broad asset class. The, co- the term alternative really stands for anything that is not a publicly traded stock or bond. So real estate, oil, gas, commodities, um, any type of derivative instrument or even cryptocurrency all fall under this umbrella of alternatives. But what we're focusing on here is risk managing alternatives. And what those are designed to do, they, I mean, these, these are relatively complex instruments, but the best way to, to look at them is they are instruments that are designed to invest in non-traditional vehicles, such as call it commodities and currencies that can take both long and short positions. So bet before, bet for and against different asset classes and carry very little to no correlation with stocks and bonds. So they're instruments that are non-traditional, but more importantly, they're not going to move in the same direction as those those two other primary asset classes most of the time, particularly whenever we see an equity market downtrend. And that that's what makes them a very potent tool in portfolio construction. And so when we think about uh, alternatives in the way you're, you're talking about them. Uh, really, one of the goals I think of alternative investing is to eliminate the systematic risk of the market. Yep, you're not. You're still taking risk because you still have a manager that's choosing, you know, which assets to go long and which assets to go short. Uh, but it's not like an equity index fund where you can guarantee that if the market has a has a big correction, your portfolio is going to see a correction too in some, you know, in, in some, you know, meaningful way that compares to that. So you talk specifically, I think, in the article about managed futures as being a valuable uh, addition to a diversified portfolio. And, and I think the reason behind that is utilization of managed futures helps you in some cases reduce portfolio risk but I think you referred to it as also maintaining a dynamic correlation to equity returns. So can you quantify that for us or possibly talk through the advantages of adding a managed futures uh, type investment to a traditional 60% equity, 40% bond portfolio that's kind of that historical moderate portfolio that we uh, that we benchmark against? 
Yeah, yeah. So we've we've been a, a heavy allocator to managed futures for the past, call it 18 months. And really what managed futures is doing is it is using a series of models. Like I said, these are relatively complex instruments. But under the surface, they're using a, a, a series of algorithmic models. And they're looking at things on about a six to nine month uh, backward looking trend. And they're comparing all of these different asset classes. I believe the manager that we use um, looks at about 80 different asset classes around the world, both stocks, bonds, commodities, currencies, you name it. And what they are doing is they are looking at those trends through a historical lens, and they are deciding which of those asset classes they should bet for or bet against. So, for example... One of the primary trades that the manager we use employed last year is that they saw a deterioration in the momentum of both stocks and bonds, so they betted against those asset classes. They took those borrowed proceeds from betting against the other asset classes and reinvested it into things like oil, gas, agricultural products, metals, and the U.S. dollar, things that truly benefited from inflation, and they were able to capture that that entire call it inflation spread. And so while, you know, broad markets were down anywhere from 15 to 30% last year, these managed futures funds, because they were able to allocate dynamically to those non-traditional assets, were up about 15 to 20% last year. And that's the beauty of these instruments is that, you know, they, they carry an annualized return of about 5%. If you look over the course of multiple decades, and that is less than the average annualized return of call it the S&P 500 at seven to 8%. But it's offering that annualized return of 5% with, like I said, very little to no correlation with your broader uh, stock and bond markets. And they tend to work best when the other asset classes don't. So it offers some of that yin and yang that especially last year fixed income was not able to offer. And so one of the potential benefits about of having managed futures in the portfolio is similar to the benefit that a bond position would have in that. To the extent that it helps you manage risk, you may be able to have a higher equity allocation in your overall portfolio than you otherwise would be able to, which all the data suggests that that's really the goal over the long term, to be able to have as high an equity position in your overall investment portfolio as you can tolerate based on your individual circumstances. There's a second component to that, too. How does managed futures play over the longer term? We can see how it benefited in 2022. Uh, seemed like that might have been a perfect storm for managed futures compared to the other two asset classes. Or was it? Even if we assume that inflation is cooling off, on the back of making those assumptions, tell me why managed futures is still a good addition to a portfolio if if fixed income is the comeback kid and if we're going to revert to the mean and all these things, why do we still need managed futures for the long term? And is it something that investors should really be looking at as a fundamental part of their overall portfolio construction going forward? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and we we actually included a uh, a snippet of some research that was performed by uh, PIMCO. Uh, well, a large, large, uh, specifically fixed income manager out on the West Coast. And what they were looking at um, was a traditional 60-40 portfolio. So 60% stocks, 40% bonds. And then a portfolio that was essentially, call it 55% stocks, 35% bonds, and then 10% managed futures. And what you'll notice in there is that the average annualized return over the course of, I believe this was a two-decade period that they ran this regression, um, 
the average annualized return for both portfolios was 6.5%. But the annualized volatility or standard deviation of the portfolio that had the managed futures was about 8% versus 9%. And I know that those numbers sound relatively arbitrary, but ultimately what that's doing is that is increasing that risk-adjusted return, that price per square foot that the, that the investor is going to, to be feeling emotionally as they invest across the economic cycle. And I think that one of the things that that is truly interesting is there's another component of this analysis that will show rolling monthly correlations to um, – to, to, to broad equity markets. And what you'll see is that in up quarters, managed futures are able to carry about a 0.1 correlation to the stock market. But in down quarters, it's able to actually carry a negative correlation of uh, about negative 0.25. And so you're, you're able to see that whenever stocks are, whenever the stock market is working and we're in an uptrend, this instrument, even if it's not going to rip as hard as, as the S&P 500, for example, it is still carrying a positive correlation and participating in the broad uptrend of the economic environment at that time. Whereas if you begin to see uh, things deteriorate, like we saw last year, the, 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 the tactical nature of these tools can quickly flip into positioning that allows you to actually have a negative correlation um, to those downtrending markets. And so to your your, your, your broad question... You know, I, I think that the regime has changed and we are now living in a world where investors should not just look at a two-pronged portfolio of stocks and bonds. I do think that both of those asset classes are, are, are definitely going to be investable over the next several decades. But I do think that we are now living in a world where alternatives do matter. And I do think that because of instruments like managed futures that can carry a correlation that is dynamic – uh, it, it, it lends itself to more durability across the economic cycle, regardless of where we might find ourselves in that cycle. Well, Dean, that was awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. And this is just a reminder that we're going to link to the entire article in the show notes. So anybody who wants to, uh, to go on and read it more thoroughly uh, can certainly do so. And Dean, we look forward to uh, seeing more of your work. Thank you so All much. Right, for thank joining you very us. much. Appreciate it. Thank you. And that's a wrap for this episode of A Voice from the Hills podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And for access to this episode and all prior episodes, you can subscribe to A Voice from the Hills on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you access your podcast. You can follow A Voice from the Hills and Silicon Hills Wealth Management on social media to gain access to all of our content. And we've also rolled out a new mini pod called The Stream. The stream is going to highlight timely updates and information and introduce important ideas and concepts in short but impactful three-minute micropods. You can subscribe separately to the stream on all podcast platforms, and you can access the stream through any Alexa-enabled device by simply asking Alexa to play the latest update from Silicon Hills Wealth. If you'd like to learn more about Silicon Hills Wealth and the services we offer, please visit our website. And as always, we cannot thank you enough for engaging with us. We can only do our best work when you are here to listen.